Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Many people believe that the most outspoken and often the most extroverted people, some might say the more alpha characters in the room, end up being the leaders. But the argument for today is that given the current market dynamics, we need a different type of leaders to step up, stand out, be influential, and inspire their teams. So if you're more of a beta character, we want to talk about how can you lead. And if you're more of an alpha character, we want to talk about how do you foster more beta beta qualities. And my guest today is Jeffrey Hall. Jeff is CEO of Leadership Leader, I can't speak tonight, CEO of Leadership. Inc., which is a leadership development consultancy based in New York, and he's also the author of a best-selling book, Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World, which was just published in this year, in fact. Um, he's a highly sought-after speaker, a consultant, and an executive coach. He's a clinical instructor in psychology at the Harvard Medical School, and he's an adjunct professor of leadership at North New York University, along with a host of other things, including development at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard Medical School, and so on. He's written a number of things, including articles on Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Coaching World, and a host of others. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. So I use the words alpha character and beta character, but let's start with what do you mean by alpha and beta? Well, I think that uh, there's the obvious, right? We think of uh, heroic leaders as those that fit the archetype of extroverted, charismatic, authoritative, and sort of sitting at the top of the pyramid. Um, I think most people would be comfortable with that description. The, the idea of a beta leader is relatively recent in our lexicon, And it evolves out of the idea really from the tech world where beta style development, software development, was more an iterative process and in fact culminated recently with Google deciding to uh, keep their Gmail product constantly in beta. Um, And so it really becomes representative of a more of a growth mindset, more of a feedback loop oriented uh, philosophy. And ultimately, in today's world, we're talking about someone who's more consensus-driven, more collaborative, a curious, um, someone who's really trying to build the creativity and engagement of the team, not so much being directive. Okay. So when you say heroic, I often use the word heroic to talk about people who are willing to sweep in know what needs to be done, know how it needs to be done. They're the experts in many ways, and they can get everybody organized and structured and often moving and making things happen. Is that the same thing as what you mean by an alpha heroic archetype? Yeah, I would say it's very similar. Um, But what's different, of course, is that those leaders are not always what's needed these days. I think that um, if you have an urgent situation or you're trying to overcome uh, 
an obstacle or a major disruption, you may want the hero to come in and save the day. But on a day-to-day basis, when you're looking for ongoing innovation and creativity, you know, that kind of person takes up a lot of space and they can be particularly individualistic. And under some situations, like urgent situations, that may be helpful, but it may also be counterproductive. So what I wanted to do in my book and in my research was to elevate a more broad range, and I call it the post-heroic leader. Mm -hmm. And it's not really about being one or the other, but about creating a spectrum where, depending upon where you lie naturally, to build on your strengths and bring all of the different capabilities to the front as needed. Okay. All right. Well, I think we all have an idea in our head of what an alpha leader, heroic leader would look like in that they are fairly extroverted. They are a bit authoritarian, even if they're nice about it. They're very charismatic and kind of they can get everybody to do anything they need them to do, if you will. Kind of commanding the room, I think, is the example you think of. And you're right. They do take up an awful lot of space on occasion. And sometimes we actually really love them because they sort of, you know, get us moving all in the right direction. But I think it's hard to understand what beta looks like. And I take your point about beta from the software world, but can you give me an example of what a beta leader is like? Are there any examples in the public world that we would know, or in movies even for that matter? Um, From the public world, I would probably consider Mark Zuckerberg to be a beta leader. I think he probably is becoming more alpha um, but I don't think that's naturally where he started out. Um, okay. Well, yeah, describe I, somebody you've worked with in terms of what they're like and what this sort of other style really looks like. Because you say feedback loop. Okay. So give me an example. I mean, a really good example would be someone that I've worked with who was the head of data engineering for a very well-known software company super expert in the software space and in running a small team. And then, but his style is collaborative, consensus building. In a sense, he's sort of a servant leader, kind of leads from behind, empowering the team. And then when he was promoted, because he's talented and done well, to a global role, you know, he had to actually step up and develop some of those alpha skills to go on conference calls and be the first one to speak and actually have a more directive style in a virtual situation. His natural tendency is to be census-driven and be more collaborative and actually going around the room and listening to everyone. And that actually is a really nice combination. So I consider that to be a good example of a beta leader who, when necessary, can pull out their alpha skills. Um, And I would say that there's uh, there are many clients I've worked with that are more alpha that have needed because they want creativity from their team to have to step back and be a little bit more beta. Okay. So you really are talking about this on a continuum that some Absolutely. people exist out on one end and some people exist out on the other. But what we really need, I think, if I'm stealing from your book title is flex, that we move yeah. between the two. So in that right. context, When is alpha really needed and when is beta really needed? I mean, is alpha only Uh, in a crisis? Not necessarily just a crisis, but I would say when it's clear that the team lacks direction or when there is an urgency 
to move quickly, that's when an alpha style leader can actually be very inspiring and uh, an important success factor for the team is to have someone they can look to that drives toward results. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're really trying to get creativity out of your team and you want people to be innovative and reflective and willing to take risks to try new things, then you have to create a sense of psychological safety as a leader. And psychological safety comes from creating more space, from being more individually focused on what do the team needs. And it's less about the alpha leader, you know, being rah-rah, visionary, directive, and more about taking a look at what does this team need to be at its best? What do I need to do to get everyone to participate? And that's actually a different style. It may actually be someone who steps back a little and is more curious and more setting up a team environment that's where questions are being asked and a lot more listening is being done than you would think of as a typical alpha style. Okay. Okay. All right. So now this might be like slightly controversial, but psychological safety is such an important concept and we know how critical it is for teams to thrive and deliver and create, you know, understand where even the problems lie, let alone be innovative and reflective and take risks. So we know that really, really matters. So do you think alpha characters do a less well job from the alpha space in creating psychological safety than beta? And then why? I mean, I wouldn't make a definitive statement one way or the other, but I would say they're more at risk because they are more focused on their own authoritative directive style and may not have the self-awareness or the social awareness, which is part of emotional intelligence, to actually pay attention to whether people really do feel safe. So it's a risk factor. Okay. And so that's where if you're an alpha-style leader and you want to build psychological safety, you've got to develop those beta muscles. You've got to tune into your team. You've got to pay attention to the energy in the space, and you have to be willing to have it not always be about you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I get that sense of where you're driving, that the person who wants to take up the space in the room, who wants to be at the center of the hub, who wants to drive the action, and in effect, it becomes about you as the leader that that's the one that's the alpha can get the people organized when we need, you know, kind of a push or a sense of urgency, but not going to create the space where we really innovate, create challenge as in the psychological space safety. Okay. So if I am more of a beta style leader, so you've used the words collaborative, I'm more curious and more willing to engage the team. I'm more willing to say, to ask questions and maybe even to say, I don't get it right. I'm not sure. Let's do it again. How do betas speak up and stand out and inspire? Well, that's a great question because that's often the key to their success. Just as you mentioned in alpha, the risk factor with alphas is that they may not be tuned into others enough to create psychological safety. The risk factor with a beta is that they won't speak up, speak first, be directive and visionary when they need to be. So that's where they have to be have, have that self-awareness to recognize that there are times when it is really valuable for them to speak first and to take a very strong position or to clarify their vision. So what I always do with my clients that fit that, 
profile is to ask them about their success. You know, many of them are very high achieving and they've done very well academically or they've done in sports or they've done very well with teams and some projects. So I'll ask them to reflect on how did they, how did they get to that level of success? How did they develop their expertise? And they'll often say to me, well, I worked really hard. I stepped up at the last minute. I spent all night working on it. And I'll ask them to think about the energy of success and how to then they can repeat that energy in the more alpha needed moments. And then I'll also ask them to get some buddies, to get some support from other people that may do that well and for them to team up and to look at how other people um, use those alpha skills and what can they emulate. So it's becoming aware of what it takes at times and practicing it. So I can well appreciate that when somebody reflects on the energy that they used to do something really well and succeed really well, that in that moment they kind of can appreciate how they can step out in a different way. Okay, I can get that one. But how do we know? So I, let's assume for a moment I'm sort of a more introverted type. I'm a little more of a hold back. I'm more tuned into what's happening in the group. I'm more willing to ask questions, be curious, listen to feedback, all those kind of characteristics. How do I know when I need to shift style? Well, in most cases, here's the good news. A beta style leader is most most often open to feedback. So they're typically the ones that will actually ask their team what's working and what do I need to do differently. I'll give you an example. I have a software uh, engineering director for a media company, very successful in training the entire company on how to use a new software product. And she was asked to step up and lead the global effort. And she started doing it. And she's certainly respected for her knowledge but she is more of a beta leader and she could find, and she was asking for feedback for what's working and what's not working. And some of the folks that were in other countries said to her, well, you know, I love working with you, but often we have to wait to the very end of the phone call before we actually get your opinion. And when we're on a call and it's 11 o'clock at night, we'd really like to know what your vision is right up front. So it would be great if you could be more directive at times. And, you know, we know you're a good listener, so we know you're going to make space for everybody to have an opinion, but we actually want to know what you think. And so she took that feedback to heart. She put on her computer in a big sticky, speak first, direct first. And it was a practice for her to actually sort of take charge, but she still had that feedback, you know, style. She would, she would exactly what she thought needed to happen, and then she would ask for other others for feedback. So in many cases, I think betas can actually pick up on what they need to do in some ways easier than alphas. Okay, because they're more tuned to the reaction and more open, well, more willing to ask the question and then more willing to listen to the answer to the question, the feedback from the question. Right, exactly, although it may be difficult for them because sometimes – a lot of the betas that I work with are what I would call a reluctant leader. Yes. Um, but, we need, but we need them. Okay. We do need them. Absolutely, we need them. I want to shift this to slightly differently. Still saying with beta characters, I do an awful sure. lot of coaching with people in groups where they're leading in small ways, not in a big group or in a big global scale yet. 
And they have influence, obviously, but they're very hesitant to speak out. They're very introverted, and they struggle to find space to get their opinions into the room. Sometimes a courage to do that, but more often just struggle to have the space to get it in. How do you help those people figure out how to speak? I mean, what I suggest to them is don't try to find a space to speak. Actually, go all the way to the other extreme and speak first. shock the team by being the very first one to speak and that will immediately change the energy okay because instead of instead of getting anxiety as you wait and wait and wait patiently for a moment to break into the conversation if you actually are one of the very first people to speak two things happen number one you'll be so proud of yourself that you'll be more relaxed And number two, everyone in the room will be impressed because they haven't heard from you. And so they'll start to pay attention to the difference. And the whole energy between you and the team will start to feel more comfortable. So it's a very simple tweak. Rather than wait to fit yourself in, just go first. Make a point. Put it on your phone. I'm going to speak first. (laughs) Okay. All right. I like that. And that gives you some prep for what's the first thing that I'm going to say when I get in. I think that's a very clever idea. And what about when people are really nervous? How do you help them get over the nervousness of what are people going to think and how are they going to react? And is it going to be, you know, all the usual anxieties we get? How, How do you help them get past the nervousness? I mean, I think what you think about in terms of anxiety is recognizing it's the same as a presentation, right? So the, the two things that make the biggest difference for anyone that's about to give a presentation or feels anxious about speaking up, number one, deep breathing, because that's what people do. They forget to breathe. So reminding yourself with a touchstone, with something written on your phone or your computer or something that tells you breathe deeply because breathing deeply is relaxing. And then secondly, to remember that anxiety is actually perfectly normal. That it's, you know, one of the reasons people get anxious is because they don't like their anxiety and they want the anxiety to go away. But that's actually making it worse because they're judging it. So you have two levels. You have anxiety and then you have criticism of anxiety. And that just continues to fuel it. Whereas if you have a mindset that says, oh, it's perfectly normal to be anxious. I'm about to speak in front of eight people or I'm about to speak in front of a thousand people. And that's actually energy that I can use to have more... Um, confidence or have put to put that energy into the conversation rather than seeing it as a negative. They just see it as a perfectly normal uh, aspect of presenting. And I think that that shift in mindset, along with good breathing techniques, uh, can really help. That's great. I do agree with you. I, everybody says to me, how do I stop being anxious? And I say, you can't. You don't. Everybody's anxious. I don't care what character you are. Everybody's a little bit anxious. So I love that is stop criticizing yourself and just accept it as normal. Exactly. Absolutely. Don't try to stop being anxious. You'll just make it worse. Okay. All right. So let's flip the coin. We've been talking about how to get betas to be a little more alpha. How about the other direction? How do I get alpha characters to make this emotional connection to get a little more tuned in to what's going on around them? Well, I think, again, the key there is self-awareness to recognize what is their intention. If their intention is to get results, then they probably are successful in driving activity. But if their intention is to get great ideas, 
and to make uh, high morale and to have people feel engaged, then the mindset has to be, oh, this is not just about my style. It's also about everyone else's style. So I have to start to pay attention to what's going on in the space, both energetically and physically and emotionally with my team. So the first step, I think, is to get clear on their intention. And many alphas have the right intention. They have the best intentions. They're just unaware that a lot of the small things that they do actually are counterproductive to creating that sense of safety and that sense of of inquiry and curiosity that they're looking for. Yeah, sometimes I think, I like this distinction about the intentionality, where the intentionality is to get results, push people to action, or where the intentionality is about the ideas, the creativity, engagement, the energy level, the the motivation, all those other things. But sometimes I find, um, particularly the alpha characters that are very driven for results, get so impatient And then they run out of the intention to get ideas because I'm not getting any fast enough. So how do you help with the patients? Well, I think they have to become, you know, again, it's awareness, right? Becoming aware that they are the creator of their own results. You know, they are, if their impatience is actually helping other, causing other people to feel stressed then they're reinforcing the negative energy and they're actually being counterproductive. So it's having them sort of wake up to how they're hurting them, their own intentions. And, and then I would say trying to practice the other end of the spectrum and see what happens. So sharing the spotlight and seeing what happens. You know, I recently had a team leader, an executive I was working with who was struggling with team meetings because he wound up doing the alpha thing where he had an agenda and he went and he ran the whole meeting and very few people spoke. And he kept saying to me, you know, Jeff, how come like four or five of the people in the meeting never speak up and what do I need to do to get everybody to engage? And I said, I said to him, well, why don't you have somebody else run the meeting? Why don't you rotate, have some of your team actually run different components of the meeting and then you can observe and you can listen. And that was kind of a revelation for him. Like, oh, you mean I'm the boss? I don't have to run everything? And I'm like, yeah, you can let other people, you know, rotate. And it was actually very relaxing for him. Okay. <laughs> and, and people appreciated the opportunity to actually be in charge when he wasn't always in charge. And did it get more interaction in the team? Absolutely, because he asked some of those silent people to actually lead different sections of the meeting. And then they stepped up. Okay. And did he, I mean, so did that actually help him see that a different style other than just in the agenda setting is going to work in other places? Did he go on to improve the rest of his leadership? I think it's, a, it's an ongoing process, but yes, it's a re- it was a bit of a revelation for him to realize that he could do this in a more collaborative way and that there's a lot of value to empowering other people to step up and take ownership and take accountability. And then it also, this is one of the keys, I think, for alphas. It doesn't take away from their credibility to empower others. And that was a good eye-opening experience for him. So, yeah, I think he's on the journey to looking at how he can empower his colleagues and yet still hold the, you know, the credible expert level or the credible leadership role that he 
has earned. And he doesn't, it doesn't take away from that. Right. Right. Okay. So let me describe an example of, well, I'm going to describe it as one person, but I probably have 15 of these clients somewhere in the last year. There's a lot of them. We're a very intellectual person. Okay. So, and very logical and analytical. And they may right. come from a more quantitative side, or they just may come from a more factual, driven, scientific approach to the business, if you will, and value that side. So, right. you know, we're going to make evidence-based decisions, which I, is a good thing. And it, we're going to go for logic, and we're going to manage the risk associated with it, and so on. And it's not that they don't value other people's opinions. They do. But they don't appreciate other people's emotions or emotional reactions. So I'm not describing somebody who's a classic alpha in the way you've described it. I'm describing somebody who's just not as emotionally attuned. What's your advice for that person? Well, I think a lot of the time, and I agree with you, that's not at all uncommon, especially in engineering and science and data-driven environments. And I think what I often do with clients in that space is ask them to become very personal about their lives, like to step back and reflect on some of the more profound decisions they've made, whether it's around their personal partner, um, their spouse, you know, falling in love, their children, um, to ask them about some of those decisions that they've made over their lifetime and whether or not they were always rational and whether or not they were always data driven. And in many cases, they, you know, they'll tear up and say, well, yeah, I guess I, you know, I did a sort of data spreadsheet about choosing my wife, but at the end of the day, it was a heartfelt sort of intuition yeah. that I knew that she was the right one. And I'll say, oh, well, so you value that. And of course, most people do value that. They just take it outside of the workplace right. and they devalue it in the workplace. So yeah. it's, re- it's kind of like reminding them that the work environment is also a human environment, that people are human beings in the office just like they are out of the office. And you have to treat them like full, complete humans, and that includes the emotional component. And that's usually a kind of wake-up call for some of those folks, like, oh, yeah, I'm so emotionally in tune to my kids and to my spouse and to my dear mother or my friends, but then I go into the office and it's all about data. Right. But that's kind of a false dichotomy. Yeah. I find those people don't believe, getting them to believe that emotions are valuable in work is the big journey. Because they'll Mm. think that somebody who's being, who's more having an emotional reaction or making a decision from a base of understanding the emotions is being weak. Yeah. I mean, this is where the neuroscience research is very helpful for us coaches because there's been some good neuroscience research that's shown that relational oriented decisions are are very much a part of the way the brain works. And there's really good science that demonstrates that creating a sense of connection and safety and fairness um, and relatedness are all part and parcel of making good decisions. So sometimes those very data-driven or science-oriented folks value seeing some of that research. It gives them sort of a broader context. Great. 
Great. Okay. Well, Jeff, it's a perfect time to take a break. Um, so with me today is Jeff Hall. He is the CEO of Leadership, which is a leadership development cons- consultancy in New York. And more importantly for today, he's the author of a new best-selling book called Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. And we've been talking about two ends, two extreme ends of the spectrum, alpha leaders and beta leaders, alpha being more charismatic, driven, extroverted, and beta being more consensus-oriented, collaborative, listeners, curious, feedback seekers. And the notion that leadership actually really exists all throughout the spectrum. And it's not so much a matter of being one or the other as it is about being able to flex between the two. So when we come back, I want to talk about another quality, which is just notion about somatic leadership. So we'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm with Jeffrey Hall today, and Jeffrey is CEO of Leadershift. He's also the author of Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. I should say that Jeff is a clinical instructor in psychology at Harvard Medical School, an adjunct professor of leadership at New York University, and he's also a director of education and business development at the Institute of Coaching, which is a Harvard Medical School affiliate, and more. You can find out more about Jeff or reach him at www.jeffreyhull.com. So, Jeff. 
We were talking about the alpha and beta characters and the continuum between those two, but I want to talk about this concept called somatic leadership. What do you mean and why does this matter? Well, I'm glad you asked because what I mean is that if you want to really be effective in today's leadership landscape, you have to do more than just be cerebral or rational and emotionally intelligent. I think there's been a lot of emphasis in the last 10 years or so on the EQ, which is super valuable, um, that we need to have more emotional awareness, more emotional regulation, more social awareness as leaders. All of that is absolutely true. But it's also true that, you know, about 80% of the impact that you have as a leader is actually nonverbal. It's actually based on the way you show up physically and somatically. And so who you are as a leader in terms of your impact and your influence and the kind of energy that you create around you has as much to do with your success as the emotions and as the intellect. So that's why I placed a lot of emphasis in my book on somatic leadership. And it's about you as a physical person, like your gestures, your eye contact, your presence, your stance, and also about the energy around you. Like, are you paying attention to the dynamic of the team? You know, the power positioning around your board table or the lighting or the timing, things that are energy oriented more than emotional or cerebral, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Um, I suspect that we probably need an example about this one. So somatic energy is my physical being. So my gestures, my eye contact, my body language in the kind of classic vernacular, I guess is the best way to say that. But it's more than that, which I find fascinating. It's the energy I create. It's the power positions around the table. It's the lighting in the room and the timing Say more about this. Well, there's a couple of different ways you can think about it. I mean, uh, studies have been done around office environments where they're trying to engender creativity and innovation. And they found that the way the space is configured, the level of privacy, the level of noise, the level of lighting, the level of color, the aesthetics, All of those things play into whether people are feeling safe, whether they're willing to take risks, whether they are engaged. So, you know, those kinds of elements actually do make a difference. Um, And another example is that some of the science has shown that when you get people outside in nature, for example, they are about 25% more creative than when they are stuck inside looking at their iPhones or looking at their computers. And that's actually scientifically proven. So it's not just, I mean, it kind of sounds nice to think we should take our team out into the woods, but it's actually been demonstrated with a number of repeated scientific studies where they took people, and I won't, I won't describe the entire study because it takes too long, but they took folks out into nature for a couple of hours and they, give, they gave them creativity tests before and after, and then they had a, you know, control group that did not get that experience, and the difference in the level of creative thinking was huge. Hmm. And so, is this, example. 
is it just in nature per se, or is it doing something different? So like if we just went to a different environment, a different building, would I get the same thing? Or is it about nature specifically? Well, I think it's probably the answer is both. I think there is something to be demonstrated in actually being out in nature. So, and that's probably connected to the natural space that's not, um, you know, where people are distracted by cell phones and computers and they can focus. And then, then just the calm and the quiet of the natural world. So I think there is something to be said about being in nature and turning off the computers and turning off the phones. But I think your, your question is also about, you know, like on a day-to-day basis, if you're even working in the office, and I'll just give you an example of where this matters. So I have a group of um, statisticians that I worked with at a, um, it's like a pharmaceutical research environment, and they all went to the boss and said that they did their best creative work in the middle of the night because it was quiet and they could kind of huddle together and brainstorm and they didn't have any distractions. They knew there would be no phone calls. And so they would park a cup of coffee and they would all get together at like 11 o'clock at night. And the boss was like, what, are you crazy? You guys need to go home. I'm not going to have you working in the office at 11 o'clock at night. So they had a big debate. And ultimately as the coach, they made me be the mediator And I mean, I basically asked them, are you guys really more effective together at that hour? And they they all agreed that's what they wanted. So, you know, I said to the boss, well, are you more attached to having them work nine to five or are you more attached to having great outcomes? And ultimately, you know, you can see where we're going. They got their way. Um, And maybe that's kind of an extreme example, but it just proves the point that I think the, the space, the environment, the timing, those are all relevant in terms of getting the most out of your team. And that's what I mean by somatic energy um, for the leaders to be thinking about. So it's also the way they, they set things up, not just their body, not their, you know, just their own physicality. Right. I have a client that has just redecorated the, every building that they own to modernize it. And they put in lots mm-hmm. of color. And they put in different kinds of artwork. You know, they've got some of their classic yep. old art, traditional artwork. I don't want to say old, but more classic traditional artwork. And they have some very right. modern, strange stuff in some ways. And what they're getting back from the employees is that it has created more energy. So the conference rooms will be very different. Like one will be colored orange, you know, like orange glass as opposed to just clear glass. Different kind of furniture, different kind of pillows, different, I mean, all sorts of different things to create different sorts of space. So is that what you're talking about for to getting creativity and energy that we need variety? Or is it that we always need more quiet and more color? I think it's probably yes and yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but it really would depend on paying attention to your people and getting feedback. So, because uh, I think that just putting in a lots of colors, you know, there's some of these high-tech startups here in New York that I work with, they have the open floor plan and everybody's on skateboards and they bring their dogs to work and it's all very open and creative. But I've had many people actually complain about it, that they lack privacy, they have no place to go to quiet. Um, one of my clients who had that very sort of open, creative, colorful environment wound up renting space in a um, offshoot 
down the street called breathing room where they were able to have like little meditative quiet rooms that people could go to. So, you know, I don't think there's any magic formula, but I guess what I'm saying is that as a leader, you want to get the best out of your people. You're looking to get the greatest performance and innovation. And so it's about actually incorporating your, those things into your thinking, those elements, the aesthetics and the timing and the physical space. Now, I don't know, you know, what the necessarily magic formula of color and art. I think that depends on the company and the culture and what they're trying to accomplish. But what's important is that the leader actually include that in his or her thinking. Okay. So to think about the lighting, the color, the space itself, the um, noise level, the amount of privacy, the artwork, all of the dynamics in the space in which people work and fitting that to what works best for your people. So we're right back to that notion of getting the feedback and listening to them and probably a good bit of variety. Because if you're running a large firm, it's a good bit that some people prefer the quieter spaces and some people prefer the noisier spaces, the more active dynamic spaces. So it's finding slots for all of those. I will also say I know um, running training seminars, you know, we typically run them around people sitting around a table. That's become the norm anymore, as opposed to the old theater style like we used to do with universities. But I have been experimenting lately with put taking the tables away as if the tables were a barrier for communication. There's some disadvantages to it. But boy, does it change the dynamics of the conversation. So that's also what you're talking about in terms of the somatic leadership. True? That is exact. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful example. Um, There's nothing more energetically powerful than taking the barriers out between people. So, you know, the example of sitting around a boardroom versus sitting around in a circle. Yeah. Where you have nothing. I mean, it literally changes the energy from night to day. And I want to make clear that I'm not saying that everybody sitting around in a circle and sing, singing Kumbaya is necessarily the answer. Um, there may be good times and appropriate moments to sit on a board, to sit in a board room where, you know, the boss sits at the head of the table. That may be absolutely appropriate. But what's important for today's landscape is for the leader to be aware of the important shifts that take place if you do do it differently. And then to have more options, right? So that they're not right. always meeting behind their desk with their, cla- with, their, with their subordinates. They're not always sitting at a board table. They're, they're changing it up. And that's right. actually where we're getting more innovative. Great. All right. Okay, now we went off in this direction on the somatic leadership by talking about the physical space itself and the ways in which that creates energy. But I want to go back to the personal physical side. So the gestures, the eye contact, the body language, the way I create energy around me. So, you know, what matters there? What should we be aware of and thinking about? Well, what we need to think about there is that the smaller the tweak, the bigger the impact. You know, the the, the studies of empathy, and my colleague Helen Reese at Harvard has a wonderful book about this called The Empathy Effect. And, um, but she's done a lot of good studies with physicians 
And how do we know when they have a good bedside manner, right? And there's nothing more um, emblematic of empathy than when you're interacting with a physician or a nurse. Mm-hmm. And studies have shown that it's really the small things, the small gestures, the openness of your body, the physical stance that you take with without crossing your arms, for example, without leaning back in your chair, which actually makes people feel like you're almost trying to take yourself away from them. The eye contact, the smile, occasionally, you know, there are a lot of very, very nice people, I think, and myself included, who don't smile enough. You know, I've had feedback on with me where people say, you know, you look really serious all the time. And I'm like, really? I'm actually a pretty light guy. But you forget, unless you're staring in a mirror, that you're not necessarily smiling. So it is those small gestures, those small physical attributes that connect you to others and that create um, that sense of empathy. Okay. The... Um that's that yeah i i believe that and i see that all the time and i see people doing um odd habits you know like odd twitches odd things that they play with in their hands or you know sticking their hands in their pocket or all sorts of crazy small gestures that look odd and then you spend your time wondering why are they having their hands in their pockets all the time or why do they keep fiddling with their watch or playing with the pen, you know, clicking it around as opposed to focusing here. And you lose track of what it is they're actually saying. So I can see that there's lots of small things that make an enormous difference in terms of people's reaction to you. Let's talk for a minute, though, about energy, because you also said it's not just the gestures and the eye contact and the body language. It's the energy you're providing around you. And presumably that's more than just the physical space that I'm in. How do I get better energy? Well, I think you have to look at what motivates you, right? I mean, at the end of the day, and the energy of enthusiasm and vitality and courage and inspiration those all come from a sense of being motivated and passionate and connecting to why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and it, it's just amazing to me how often leaders forget to include that purpose conversation to reconnect people with their passion. Um, I've worked just recently with a board of directors who was doing their five-year plan, and they asked me to facilitate for them And they had it all, you know, the whole three-day agenda, their five-year goals, their two-year goals, their tactical goals, their project plans. And they were like, so give us some some input, Jeff, on what you think might be missing from this three-day agenda. And I just looked at them and I said, when are you going to talk about why you exist? (laughs) Like, when are you going to remember why you do what you do? And they were like, oh, we, all, we already know that. We don't need to talk about that. And I said, well, yeah, that may be true that it's sort of hidden in or it's, it's, uh, it underlies everything you're doing. But don't you want to walk out of that room feeling energized and excited and motivated? And, and they said, yeah, we want to be inspired. And I said, well, what inspired you to join the group in the first place? And then they were like, oh, I see. So you want us to think about why we came here, why we do what we do. Like, yeah, you need to include that. It's not all about just goals and achievements. 
And I think that it sounds almost like motherhood and apple pie, but I'm, I'm always surprised by how often very well-intentioned leaders forget to include part of the conversation about the passion and the commitment and, the, and uh, as Simon Sinek says, the underlying why of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, because that's where the energy comes from, right? Right, right. Uh, it, uh, certainly, I see that all the time, that people that can say that here's why I'm here or here's what I believe in or here's what is matters to me, and they tell that in an incredible way. You have people in the palm of your hands at that moment in time. They just want more and more and more of it. Um, I think it's hard to figure out a way to go into talking about this purpose other than to say, why are we here and why did I join and why, what are, what's the reason for being? But I'm going to give you an example for me from this week. I was working with a small group of people around personal branding and helping them work through a model we have about how do you uncover the things you want to include in your personal branding, both from the deliverables as well as the personal style and so on. We've gone through this four-point model and everybody had done the exercises and we'd shared them, we talked about them and so on and they were putting it all together in their final story and it sounded like they were giving a performance review to their manager as opposed Mm. to talking about themselves. And I just, you know, Mm. I couldn't get that emotion out of them even though we'd done the whole thing around style and personality and even done a piece around purpose in there until I turned to them and I said, so what do you get excited about? What are you passionate about? And it's in that moment that this whole other being sort of lit up and came out. And it was transformative. I mean, everybody in the room could see it. It was really, truly transformative. I think you're absolutely right. We get afraid of not knowing how to talk about it. And so we stay to the goals and and the deliverables. Right. Or else we, we, it may not be that we're afraid to talk about it. It may be that we think we don't need to talk about it. Um, or we think it's going to come across as sort of uh, um, woo-woo, you know, soft yeah. and touchy-feely, and the business people want to stay away from that, when actually that's at the heart of what they ultimately want to accomplish, mm-hmm. it's, which is getting their people to feel connected and passionate and engaged. So it's like there's a dismissiveness that we have in our culture, I think, at times, um, around the what really moves us, what really motivates us. And yeah. so that's one of my goals as a coach is to remind my clients, either alpha or beta, to bring that into the energy. You know, be willing to be vulnerable. That, that's also connected to that vulnerability piece that I think is sometimes easier for betas than it is for alphas. To recognize yeah. that being vulnerable and speaking your heart and saying what matters is actually a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Yeah, yeah. I actually say to people on a regular basis that confidence is, or sort of that show of confidence is one part, I know what I'm talking about, which is more alpha-like, and it's one part humility or vulnerability. So it's the balance of those two that I think actually leads to authenticity and a sense of real confidence in this one. Okay, Jeff. Totally got. I'm going to open up a whole new topic, and I'm going to give you two minutes to say something about it, literally two minutes. Virtual teams, different time zones. How do we begin to think about the different cultures and the differences across cultures? Oh, I love this question because I think what you're pointing to in it 
is revolutionary. I think that what we are onto currently is a huge shift from a very Western, uh, patriarchal oriented, hierarchical, you know, pyramid type structure around leaders toward a flatter, democratic, networked, multicultural. And as we move in that direction, leaders have to become more comfortable with people from all different backgrounds. And so what I like to phrase it as is developing cultural humility. Um, about 10 years ago, there was, a re- there was research being done, um, which was useful, I think, toward helping people become what they called culturally competent. And that was a lot about like learning what French people do and how to interact with Koreans and uh, knowing where to put your feet when you're in Thailand. And so there was some usefulness in learning to recognize differences and be respectful of differences. I think that was valuable. But in today's world, we need to go another step forward. We need to not be Western-oriented in our thinking. We need to be open and humble about learning about all the different cultural differences. And so when you're working with a multicultural team as a leader, if you can have that kind of humble perspective where you're always learning, you're always asking Teach me about your culture. What are the values of your culture? What are you bringing to the table that's different, that's something that I may not know? And I think that's a really huge shift. Um, Great. As organizations become more global and more multicultural. Jeff, we could spend a lot longer talking about it. I love that, cultural humility and curiosity. My guest today is Jeff Hall. The book we've been talking about is Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. And you can reach Jeff at his website, www.jeffreyhall.com. Jeff, fascinating conversations about what it takes to lead in a changing world. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really loved being with you. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.